Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. I'm just going to read it for you one more time. This is such an important way. This, this passage is important for framing the whole week to really understand what Christ is doing on Friday. There's so much teaching, but you need to understand as he enters into the, into the temple, he comes triumphant. And although there are tones of sadness, although there are tones of anger, and all of this darkness is wrapped up in what's happening on Friday, the triumphant entry on Sunday, this frames the week, the deepest, most important meaning of the week. So I just want to read this to you one more time, and then we'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll get to work. Beginning in verse 12, Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, we beseech thee, save us, we beg you, to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these, I mean, there's a word for children, but they don't use that. They're so offended. They don't even call them children. These, these, do you hear what these are saying to you? And Jesus said to them, why, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared? praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he dwelled there. He stayed there that night. Let's, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much, Lord, for sending your son. Oh, Lord, we, we grieve our sin this week. And we know, Lord, that we have done wrong. Otherwise, it would not have been necessary to brutalize and torture and ultimately kill the Holy One of Israel. If our sins did not enrage you, you would not have poured out your wrath on Christ. And so we see that. We humbly acknowledge it. But Lord, as we begin Easter week, this week, as we begin to turn our thoughts towards what was necessary for the resurrection not only of Christ, but for the resurrection of all of us, Lord. Help us to understand your heart in sending your Son. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text before us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand, and that you would give faith to our hearts to believe and to follow you. We pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no place like home. 
I'm sure you've heard that expression before. It's a safe place that you can always come back to in order to rest or recuperate. It's a place where you're safe after all of the hardships and the stresses of the day. You got up, you went to work, all of the insanity ensued, and you come home at the end of the day, and it's a place for you to lighten your load, to be with your family. It's a paradise. It's an oasis. And we've all repeated that expression before. There's no place like home. Where does that come from? Now, I bet some of you are about to make the guess, and it would be a really good guess. It comes from the Wizard of Oz. It is what Dorothy says over and over and over again when she taps her, she's trying to get home to Kansas, and she's found herself in this faraway strange land, and she's in pursuit of these magical ruby red slippers that the wizard is going to give her, and if she can tap those things together and, and keep saying over and over again, there's no place like home, no place like home, She's in, she's in the belief, she has this hope that she can, she can get back to Kansas. That is not where that expression comes from, although it was made famous by that film. It was originally from a song written in 1823. Mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's still no place like home. A charm from the skies seems hollow, seems to hallow us there, which seek through the world, and yet is never met elsewhere. Home, home, sweet, sweet home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. We know, as disciples of Christ, that Jesus is our home. And for many of us, we understand that as we enter into a relationship of Christ, He is our home, and this church, this fellowship, this group of people, this has become a home to us. It's a safe place, and indeed it is, and it ought to be. But for some of you that are gathered here today, I hope that he truly is your home, and I hope that the church really is your safe place where Christ is at the center of that church, and that group of believers is your family. I hope that is true, but as we enter into this passage this morning, what I want us to understand is that it doesn't matter so much that we call Jesus our home, and we should not deceive ourselves. It, just because we call Jesus our home, and just because we call the church our our family doesn't actually mean that he is our home, that this church is our family, or that we are as safe as we tend to think ourselves. We are safe when Jesus actually is our king. That's what is being driven home to us this morning in this particular text. I invite you to look with me now. Jesus, he has had a three-year astounding ministry The first year was what I would call the year of rising popularity. He is healing people. He is performing miracles. He's casting out demons. The word spreads throughout all of Israel. The getting is good in Galilee. Get your sick aunt. Get your paralyzed child. Get your leprosy-infected relative. Put him on a cart. Put him in a wheelbarrow. Do what you got to do. Get him up to Galilee. There's a man there. He can bring healing. The second year is what I would call the year of conflict, in that the popularity has spread throughout all of Israel, 
And now he is beginning to have these interactions with the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the scribes. And they begin to see some of the things he's teaching and to see some of the ways that he is living and the lifestyle of faith that he is calling people towards. And it it violates their traditions. It violates their customs. It calls people to a personal relationship with God from the heart This sets aside many of the practices through which the religious authorities, that is, the Pharisees and the scribes, have begun to gain control and authority over people's lives. That's year two. And then year three, this is what I would call the year of, oh man, they are trying to kill this guy. That is probably not the most succinct title you could give to that year. But it is true that as he begins ministry of year three, the hostility and the opposition is there. They are constantly coming for Christ. And of course, it all comes to a head here as he enters into Jerusalem. We are told in Matthew chapter 21 that Jesus comes, the news of him and his power to heal, his mastery over the elements, even able to speak peace to the waves, to calm nature, to raise people from the dead, to to heal any disease and any infirmity, to cast out any demon. The news of this has spread, and he has arrived at the outskirts of town, and a whispered rumor begins to circulate. The Messiah is here. Jesus has come. His disciples are looking for a colt. They're looking for a donkey for him to enter into. And immediately, the rumor mill begins churning. We know the symbolism of that. We know what it means to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Indeed, he is seeking to fulfill all of the prophecies that point to the son of David, the coming king. And so these guys begin to make their way out of the city. And a whole entourage of individuals follow with coats and cloaks, and they begin hacking down these poor palm trees. I don't even know that there was a palm tree that survived in this day and age. They are just grabbing anything they can to lay it down so that he can enter into the city. And indeed, Jesus enters in, and the king, the son of David, goes into his temple. That's where we pick it up. Look with me. Verse 12, he entered the temple... And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He got rid of the money changers, and he got rid of the pigeon sellers. That's just an interesting thing in and of itself. They're selling pigeons in the, in the temple. You know, many, many, many years ago, uh, you guys, most of you who know me, you know that this is, this is the path that my wife and I followed, Shanti and I followed. Uh, I put her through university first. I went and worked a job, and I, I, I slaved and I labored because I love my wife so much. And uh, I worked long, bitter, hard hours. And uh, she went to school, and she got her degree. And then the tables flipped. And then she went, and she worked, and she put me through school. So she worked the long, hard, bitter hours, and I got to sit and study and learn from the Scriptures. So we, we took turns putting each other through university. Now, when I was putting her through university, uh, and I'll have you know, I, have a, I still have to this day the fees and the, the bills that came from the University of Texas A&M where my wife pursued and obtained a degree in horticulture and entomology, bachelor's of science. And I have the bills from when I went to Dallas Baptist University, and the fees and the fee structures were not the same. And I remember when I was working and putting her through school, there were certain fees that I saw on my bill that I did not understand. 
And one fee, one bill in particular that I kind of just always kind of scratched my head at and I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. There was a fee on there called a multicultural fee, a multicultural fee. Well, I paid for books. I paid for tuition. I paid for a campus use fee so that she can walk around. I mean, it paid for like the upkeep of the sidewalks and the planting of the grass and watering of trees and all that kind of stuff. I paid all kinds of fees. And I remember I would go through and I would look at each of these fees and I'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, I understand that there was an institutional advancement fee, all kinds of fees. And then I come to this multicultural fee. And I was like, huh, I wonder what that is. Now, you might be tempted to think what a multicultural fee does is it pays for students from other countries to be recruited and attracted to the university so that it creates a diverse culture from people from cultures all around the world. That's what I thought. But the problem was that the University of Texas A&M, they had a massive cultural heritage dinner that they did every year. They charge you like 200 bucks a ticket. And they would bring in these top name speakers and people from all over the world would come and, and, and alumni, when I say all over the world, I mean alumni, because if any of you know anything about Texas A&M, it's a bit of a cult. So you have people from all over the world flying back in for various events and functions, and they would charge 200 bucks a ticket. And I went into the registrar's office. I said, okay, you're charging 200 bucks a ticket for the cultural dinner. Yes. And what does that do? That is in order to boost the university's fund for translating all of our promotional material into various languages and various uh, advertising and campaign, marketing campaigns that will go across the world. Say, okay. So we go to this dinner, we pay all this money, and the money is used for that. Yes. Okay. What is a multicultural fee? Why do I pay that fee? And they say, well because we want to have many cultures here on campus. I'm all right with that. I want people from all over the world to come and be a part of our student body. But what am I getting for this money? You see, I'm paying for tuition. I'm paying for books. I'm paying for campus use, institutional advancement. There was even an alumni fee. My wife hadn't graduated yet. I was like, she's not even an alumni. Why am I paying a fee for that? They're like, well, she's going to become an alumni, right? And it's like, well, I mean, I guess. I hope so. But what am I paying the multicultural fee for? And I asked the registrar this. And, of course, it's always some university student who's just working a part-time job. And they're like, I don't know, man. I got to pay it. You got to pay it. We all got to pay it. Like, that's just what you pay, right? I was like, what does it actually accomplish? And nobody could ever give me the answer to that. What does this money go, where, when it leaves here, to what bank account, where does it actually funnel to? Giant shoulder shrug was all I ever got. If you've ever done any banking, you can probably relate. You have given all of your money to the bank. You get paid on the 1st and the 16th of the month, or whatever the case may be. It goes straight into the bank. They take your money. They invest it in the Toronto Stock Exchange. They invest it in a number of different real estate enterprises all around town, what have you. They earn interest. They earn a return on your money, which they invest. But on top of all of that, even though you have given them your money for safekeeping and they take it and they use it to earn a whole bunch of other money, they still charge you a fee for having your money in their bank. 
And then if you want to transfer it from one account to the next, well, there's a fee for that. If you want to use your debit card, there's a fee for that. There's a fee for you to put your money in the bank. And you have seen the fine print. I mean, there's fees upon fees, and there ain't any interest that is coming to you. It's almost zero interest. If you've been there banking, you can relate. Fees upon fees, you're not sure what they're for, but it is clear that everybody is bilking you off of it. Well, same deal here in Jerusalem. First century. There's a place we go to worship God. And we're going to travel from all over the empire. You've got Jews in the dispersion. They've been scattered to the farthest flung reaches of the empire. We're going to go back. We're going to celebrate for Passover. We're going to go and we're going to be there on this week, Holy Week. We need to have a lamb of some kind to sacrifice because that's what God has called us to do. Well, I'm not going to travel 2,000 miles from Rome all the way back to Jerusalem, dragging a lamb the whole way through. Not to worry. They make it convenient. You show up there, and they've got livestock there for you to purchase, and you can offer that. You can sacrifice that. You don't have to drag this thing with you when you travel. Great. Sweet. You show up, and you know what? Passover is going to be at the end of the week, Thursday, Friday, and you can still offer up a whole bunch of other sacrifices throughout the week. And of course, for those of you that read through the scriptures, you know they have sacrifices for anything. There's the daily sacrifice. There's the monthly sacrifice. You've got sin offerings. You've got free uh, goodwill offerings. You've got all these different things. And one of the things you can offer as a sacrifice is birds, pigeons. You can give those as a sacrifice. And so you're like, you know what? While I'm here in Jerusalem, not only am I going to celebrate with a Passover lamb, but I'm going to go ahead and make several of these other sacrifices. So you go into the temple and they say, great, you're here. You want to offer sacrifice. We have some sacrifices to sell you, which you can then turn around, give to the priest. He'll sacrifice it. He'll slaughter it. He'll offer it up on the altar. That can be your sacrifice. Wonderful. How much does it cost? Well, per pigeon, it's 25 cents. Great. So I want to offer up two pigeons. How much will that be? 75 cents. Say, what? I thought it was 25 cents per pigeon, and I want to buy two. For those of you who are like me, and you're not the quickest with math, two times 25 is 50 cents. So you're like, I want to buy two pigeons. At 25 cents a pigeon, that should be 50 cents. Yes, 75 cents is what you owe. Why? Multi-pigeon fee. (laughs) Multi-pigeon fee? What is that? Well, you're buying two. What if I just bought one? 25 cents. What if I buy one, I leave, I come back later, I buy another one? 75 cents. Why? Multi-pigeon fee, man. It gets you every time. It's not, it's not my fault. Like, I don't set the fees. I'm just here taking your money. So this was a racket. And it was exorbitant in most cases. It was extortionary. Jesus comes into town, and he beholds there in the temple businessmen. Predi- you might call them predatory lenders, giving out animals for sacrificing to pilgrims who have traveled from all over the world. They've come in order to sacrifice. And at the end of the day, it's like, what are you going to do? 
you're going to go back out into the country and try to find some farmer somewhere who's going to sell you an animal? Sure, maybe some did that. But by far and large, they have bought up all the livestock. This is the major event. You come to town. You're going to offer a sacrifice. You're going to give the money changers whatever it is they're charging you. And they've got fees on top of fees on top of fees. They are bilking you. And all you want to do is come into the Lord's house and worship him. But in order to do that, they're going to take as much from your pocketbook as they possibly can. Jesus enters into the temple. And it says there, he entered into the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. This was a transactional business where you might, have, you might be trying to pay in Roman currency. And of course, that was considered idolatrous. So they're going to convert your Roman coin over to a proper Jewish coin. And of course, there's an exchange rate and they'll exchange you to your detriment. It's always way, way more for the temple coin than for your standard Roman currency. So they had those individuals there. And then lo and behold, the seats of those who were selling pigeons with their multi-pigeon fee. Jesus comes in. He's like, these people are trying to worship. They're trying to offer sacrifice and you guys are bilking him. And so what does he do? He flips over their tables. He drives them out of the temple. He sends them away. And look at what happens next. Verse 11, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And of course, this is a reference to a passage we find in Jeremiah, a den of robbers. This is a loose translation of it. But in this day and age, if you're to travel from one city to the next, the biggest fear you have, the biggest concern you have is that you're going to be robbed along the way. Indeed, it was a very common practice for men of poor moral character to wait in ambush. They would find a cave. They would find some sort of an obstructed place where they could kind of crouch down by the side of the highway. And as pilgrims are making their way from wherever they are in the empire back to Jerusalem in order to worship God, particularly during the high holy days, we had three major festivals in Israel every year, particularly at these times of the year when they know there's going to be an increased volume of traffic on the road, they will set up shop, they'll find their spot, they'll wait for some poor unsuspecting pilgrim to come along, and they will pounce upon him. And of course, everybody hated it. It was considered, obviously, it is robbery, but these men would brutalize and beat you down, take your money, make off with it, leave you there bleeding and dying on the side of the road. And of course, it was nefarious. And Jesus says, you know what they're doing out there on the roads? That's what's happening here in the temple. You are the same as them. Now, this is indeed a blow. They prided themselves on being holy and righteous. You know, guys can be very sort of laid back, easygoing. You know, two guys get in an argument, they punch each other out. The next day, they can sort of shake hands, be like, that's all right, like, no, no big deal, you know. And I say this with love, but I have noticed, I say this with love, that ladies don't tend to be that way as much. They tend to more hold the grudge. It's like, oh, I'm angry at you, and, and they'll be enraged. Okay, now I just say that with love. Guys can do it too. But here... Jesus is calling into question the thing upon which they staked their whole livelihood, which was their character. 
He says, my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer, but you have made it no different than those guys out on the highways and the byways who assault travelers who are coming to Jerusalem to worship. That's exactly what you've done, which is a stinging rebuke. He enters into the temple. Everybody is crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is God save us. We beg you, we beseech you. And they hear all of this and they're indignant by it. But before all of that, Jesus starts the tension and he just raises the pressure right up. And he says, you guys make my house a place of robbery. It is not a place of prayer. I want you to just listen to this passage. This is from 1 Kings. Don't don't flip there, just listen. God's speaking uh, to Solomon as he's building the temple. Solomon makes this statement under the inspiration of God. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, that is, they're coming because they've heard Yahweh is here in Israel, that Yahweh makes his name to dwell here in this temple, it says, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and he prays towards this house, the temple, here in heaven from your dwelling place, Solomon says, and do according to all for which the foreigner is calling to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built, Solomon talking, that I have built is called by your name. In other words, we want all the people of the world to come here and to worship you and to pray to you and to call to you. And he says, God, I'm building this temple for you. And I am asking you here at the consecration of this temple, when people come and they pray and they cry out and they want to be near to you, hear them. And answer their cries for your glory that all the rest of the world will hear. That's what Solomon is praying. And again, it says that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall dwell there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servants offer toward this place. That you will listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and that you will listen in heaven. And when you hear them, you will forgive them. So the whole purpose of the temple was to be a place where people could draw near, they could cry out to God. And you'll notice in that whole consecration, that whole prayer that Solomon prays, there's no mention of sacrifice. It is simply these, they will come here and they will pray and they will cry out to you. And he says, when they come, when they pray, hear them and forgive them. That all the world will know God is here in Israel. So you're a traveler. You come to the temple. You worship. You celebrate Passover. You go home and your neighbors say, well, how was it? And your response as a traveler that has gone to Israel to worship the Lord, your response is this. Well, I got beaten up twice before I ever even got there. I made it there with almost next to no money because I was robbed twice. And as I entered into the temple, my own countrymen who worship God see me and they racked up the interest rate on what little money I had. I was barely able to beg, borrow, and scrape together just enough to offer up a pigeon. 
And if you're not a worshiper of Yahweh and you see all this abuse and all of this vandalism taking place in the temple, what do you think your response is going to be? Why would I be a part of a system like that? Why would I want to go and make this journey all this way? Their testimony is not, I went, I worshiped, it was wonderful, and God heard my prayer, and I am convinced he forgave me of my sins. That's not what they're talking about. Jesus says it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so he makes this claim to those who are selling money, and now we come to the priests themselves. It says the blind and the lame were coming to him in the temple. Now, you got to love this. This is beautiful. The king has entered his temple. He's healing people. They are being healed by the king in his temple. There's no charge. There's no multi-healing fee, guys. You just come. There he is, the Messiah. And you draw near to him. He welcomes you. You come. You've had whatever affliction, whatever struggle. Doesn't matter. He heals. And you're praising and worshiping him. And the fur grows. The excitement, the enthusiasm, it builds. People are just flooding into the temple compound. They're bringing everyone up to Jesus. He's healing. He's teaching. He's preaching. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how blind you were. doesn't matter how lame you were. doesn't matter what unclean disease you have. You're coming into the temple. You're flooding in. And the Messiah is there. The king is reigning and he's healing everybody. And they can come and they can worship him. And the children, they see all of this and they begin to cry out, Hosanna, children, Hosanna, God, save us. God, save us to the son of David. Now, the Pharisees are there like, whoa, this is crossing a line. They're basically saying that you're the son of God. That's unacceptable. And why is that so unacceptable? Well, you're not who we expected. You're not the one we're looking for. You don't abide by our rules. You don't follow our traditions. You don't subscribe to our various practices and bureaucratic policies that we have in place. You just drove out our primary source of income. The children are crying out, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna, save us. And they say, do you hear what these are saying? And indeed, Jesus does. And he says, yes, as a matter of fact, I hear what they're saying. And he says to them, have you never read? And he quotes to them from Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. You hear that? And indeed, Jesus is saying, they are worshiping me. And this is in fulfillment of scripture. And he quotes Psalm 8. And of course, they hear that. They're like, you're going to accept all of this worship that is basically proclaiming you to be the Messiah? And he says, yes, yes, I am. Because this is a fulfillment of scripture. And the scripture he quotes, Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. And again, don't flip there, but listen to the whole expression in context. He quotes Psalm 8, 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have prepared praise because of your enemies that you may silence them. Whoa! Talk about the part that he didn't say, which they would have known the moment he begins to quote it. Of course, this is what's supposed to happen. Of course, the children are going to praise me. Haven't you ever read the Bible where it says, out of the mouths of nursing babes and infants, you have prepared praise, dot, 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 they're saying, how dare you claim for yourself the fact that you're the Messiah? And he says, I am the Messiah, and you are my enemy. Whoa, 
This is fireworks, guys. This is a brutal showdown right on the first day. Now, let's just step back for a second. Having looked at all the context here, let's just step back and get the big picture. Jesus has come in his temple. He is there to be worshipped. He is there to heal. He is there to hear the prayers of all those who have come year by year to offer up worship and prayer in his temple. The king has arrived. And they're worshiping him. And the religious leaders show up to try to stop it. He begins by driving out the money changers. He did away with those who would be eager to prey upon your pocketbook. He receives the worship, and he concludes by overthrowing the authority of those who would deceive you through false teaching. This is a safe house. It isn't safe because Solomon built some magnificent temple that was eventually rebuilt by Herod. It isn't safe because of its splendor. It isn't safe because of its opulence or its magnificence. It is safe because the king is there. We come to worship Jesus. Or do we? How many of us, I wonder, we are engaging in compromise in our lives And we're telling ourselves it's okay because we go to church on Sunday. You see, in evangelical Christianity, I think that in a lot of ways, although we'd like to be like these children who just come in innocence and simplicity and praise and worship the Lord, I think in a lot of ways we're becoming more and more like the Pharisees, more and more like the religious leaders, the religious establishment, And my observation, and this is not, like, this is just my own personal opinion, my own own take on it. In my observation, Western Christianity, Western evangelical Christianity is starting to drift down three different paths in terms of our walk with the Lord. And I think all three of those can be traced to what we see here in the eyes of the Pharisees and the religious establishment The first one I would call, as we're looking at this, the first false spirituality that I would call is the God just wants me to be happy spirituality. God just wants me to be happy. You see, we encounter this Jesus, and he comes in to be worshipped, and immediately he drives out the money changers. He drives out those who would uh, engage in business because he wants to be worshipped, and he doesn't want anything to stand in the way of people coming to worship him. He doesn't want any financial considerations. He doesn't want anything getting in the way of people coming to be with him, to have a relationship with him. And as far as these Pharisees and these religious leaders are concerned, he is going to put a dent in their pocketbook. He does not care what it is that they are earning. He does not care how much this is going to cost them in terms of their bank account, so long as people are free to come and worship him. Now, is that your heart? Are you prepared to worship the Lord no matter what it costs you? Are you prepared to draw near to Jesus even if it puts a dent in your pocketbook? And I don't know that all of us are willing to do that. I think we would tell ourselves we're willing to do that, 
But I wonder when the chips are down and when it's actually going to cost us our jobs or when it's going to actually cost us real earnings, will Christ still be the desire of our life? When he put a major blow in the pocketbooks of the Pharisees, they were enraged. We don't necessarily get enraged when going to church might cost us in our business. We don't get enraged when going to church might cost us our jobs What we do is we continue to say, my job is number one, my business is number one, and when I look at the commands of Scripture to gather together with the church and to gather together to worship Christ, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to begin to interpret all of those passages of Scripture that call for me to prioritize the worship of Christ. I'm going to start to interpret all of those through this lens, this filter of Jesus just wants me to be happy. And the lie in that statement is, is this. Jesus does want you to be happy. You will never be happy in the pursuit of business to the exclusion of Christ. Your happiness comes from making Jesus number one. Or we can turn to this second false spirituality, which I would say is the redefinition of grace. True grace indeed demands that we repent of our sins in order that we might walk with Christ. That's what grace demands. But the reality of the gospel, what what we understand in the truth of Scripture, is that we are incapable of repenting apart from Christ's help. He has to help us. He has to give us His Holy Spirit. Christ commands repentance And then he empowers it. And this is, I think, a larger danger than the previous danger in that we now have, unfortunately, a lot of preachers. I think at times I have slipped into this as well. Where we think if we can preach angry enough or hot enough, we can motivate people through fear and condemnation into repentance. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus is worthy of any sacrifice you have to make and any struggle that you have to go through in order to forsake a temptation and to walk away from sin. I promise you, Jesus is worth it. But you must look to Christ and see him as the beautiful one. You must look to Christ and you must see him as the one who fulfills all the desires of your soul. It will never be motivated out of guilt and browbeating. All that leads to is this understanding that, I don't know, maybe Jesus really doesn't love me. He's kind of a hard and cruel taskmaster when I listen to the guy preaching. Jesus doesn't come to empower you in your sin. He comes to destroy the works of the devil and to empower you in your righteousness. The crowd that comes and hears that message but loves their sin begins an alternative hermeneutic where grace becomes redefined to mean something else. Rather than grace being not only the forgiveness of my sins and the power of Christ to help me to walk in obedience, grace becomes instead redefined to God loves me no matter what. And he's okay with my sin. I can go on living in sin in order that grace may abound funny thing is that Paul seemed to rebuke just exactly that concept in Romans chapter 6. 
And we will preach on that in four to five years' time <laughs> as we continue to work our way through the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 following, Paul says, are we to live in sin in order that grace is to abound? He says, may again it talk. Greek word, may, no, never, never should it be. That is an incorrect understanding of grace. That is a redefinition of grace. And yet, as we encounter these Pharisees, these guys here in the temple, they are of the opinion that, yeah, maybe this isn't exactly kosher. This isn't exactly what God would have us to do here in the temple. But we've got the temple. And because we've got the temple, we know God loves us. And because we know that God loves us, because we have the temple, even though this may not be the right thing to do, we've got grace. We've got God's favor. And they should have known better because the prophet Jeremiah condemns just this exact sort of interpretation. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, again, don't flip there, just listen. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. This is the temple. And proclaim there this word to Israel and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, change your ways and your deeds, and then I will let you dwell in this place. Don't trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Yeah, Jeremiah says it three times. It's like their mantra. It's their chant. You know what? We're not perfect. It's okay. We've got grace. We know we've got grace because the temple of the Lord, right? Right. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We've got the temple. We go to church. Therefore, God gives us grace to cover over everything we might desire to do. In other words, they've turned his mercy and his blessing into permission and license to live in hostility and rebellion against the king. They've redefined grace. That's the second type of spirituality that I see encroaching into Western evangelical Christianity. It is the same as what we see with the Pharisees and the religious establishment in the first century. But I don't really think that's most of us. I think for most of us in this room, the third spirituality is the one that really plagues us. I call it treadmill Christianity. Treadmill Christianity It's what we might understand as a negotiated spirituality. In other words, we've been convicted about a certain sin in our life. We know that the Lord is coming to speak to us about this sin, and we like it. We don't want to give it up. And so we enter into a negotiation with the Lord. Not all that that different from, say, when we haggle over the price of a used car. The car salesman says, well, it's going to be 10 grand. You're like, eh. I'll give you a six. And both you and he are thinking you're going to meet somewhere in the middle. Eight. He doesn't want to give it all away in one go, so he says, well, I don't know, man. That's real. How about nine? You say, well, okay, how about seven? Well, okay, how about eight? Eight, eight it is, and we both shake on it. Of course, you say six. He started at ten. He's thinking in his head, I'm really only going to let it go for nine. He's not going to meet you halfway, so then he'll respond, well... How about 9-5 for it? You know, he's going to shorten those numbers, and that gives you an indication more where he's likely to meet you. And so we approach our faith with God this way. God, I know you demand all of my life. You want full obedience. You want full faith, complete trust in you. Only problem is that I like other things besides you. I'm really in love with this sin. So I tell you what, God, I'll go to Bible study more often. I'll pray harder. I'll do this for the church. 
I'll give such and such in order to help the youth group. And God says, hmm, interesting. You make quite the bargain. Let me take this back to the Trinity. We'll talk it over. So, of course, the Father takes it back to the Trinity. Now, you need to understand this is pure fiction, okay, for illustrative purposes. The Father says, well, Son, Spirit, He's offering us this if we let Him have that. What do you guys think? Jesus is like, well, that's going to cost me quite a bit more on the cross. I mean, it's just going to hurt all that much more. I don't really like it. The Spirit says, wait, whoa, whoa, let me get this straight. In terms of the spiritual disciplines, going to church, giving, loving, sacrificing, Bible study, meditation, fasting, he's saying he's going to do all of those things, those spiritual disciplines that we appoint for the church to engage in, in order to bring about a greater knowledge of who we are, in order that they will be more and more conformed to the likeness of the Son, in order that they will continue to walk in increasing holiness. So let me get this straight. He wants to hold on to sin about which we've convicted him. And in exchange, he's going to do more of the spiritual disciplines that are intended to bring about more conviction of the sin from which we want him to change. Doesn't sound like much of a deal, does it? Of course it doesn't. God doesn't want you to believe in your sin. He wants you to believe in his son. God doesn't save you in order to persist in sin. He saves you from your sin. Jesus comes to rescue. So if you're here today, as we begin Holy Week, I want you to hear clearly. Jesus isn't interested in partial obedience, just as he's not interested in you halfway believing him and halfway thinking he's a liar. Jesus is all the way true. And you trust him all the way. And in trusting him all the way, he will rescue you all the way. We need to say that as we enter into Holy Week. But you know what? There's something else that we need to see here. I've told you all the way along, don't flip, just listen. Now I want you to flip with me. Go to Mark Go to Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. There's something that happens. For many, many years, I read this, and I, I have it in my mind like an, an order of events that take place on, on Holy Week. And for many, many years, I thought that the cleansing of the temple, he rides into town on Sunday, the 9th of Nisan. Nisan is the Jewish month in which Passover is celebrated. Passover is on the 14th of Nisan. He rides into town on Sunday, which is the 9th of Nisan. I always had it in my mind that he cleansed the temple on the 10th of Nisan, Monday morning. That's when I always just thought this event happened. If you read the Gospel of Mark, look at what it says in Mark 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 11. It says, He entered Jerusalem... And he went into the temple. Exact same thing as what we encounter in Matthew. Matthew says he entered into Jerusalem and he went into the temple and then he started to whip these guys and drive them out and cleanse the temple. Mark has it on a different day. Look at what happens. He says on the following day, verse 12, he goes back out to Bethany. On verse 12, on the following day, which would be Monday morning, 
10 Nisan. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the uh, tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons. Same exact expression there. So you read that, and you're like, okay, well, Mark says he comes in on a Sunday. Everybody's in agreement. He rides into town on a Sunday, and Mark seems to make it sound like he comes in, he looks around, and he's like, okay, I'm going back out. It's time to call it a day. I'm gonna, I've got lodging back in Bethany. I'm going to go back to Bethany. He wakes up, he comes into town, he curses a fig tree, he shows up at the temple, and he drives everybody out. And for years, I thought that's when it happened. It happened on Monday morning. But it didn't. It did happen on a Monday morning, but it also happened on Sunday evening. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew, and I want you to see this. This is so important. Matthew chapter 21, we have him riding into town, cleansing the temple, having this interaction with the Pharisees. And look what it says in verse 18. Verse 17, it says, leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. So he stayed there that night. The next verse, verse 18, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and he sees a fig tree by the wayside. He goes to it and he found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered away. And when his disciples saw it, they marveled. Jump down to verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and they began to challenge him. They said, basically, by what authority do you do these things? Matthew places the cleansing of the temple on Sunday evening. Mark places the cleansing of the temple on Monday morning. For years, I thought, okay, it must have happened on Monday morning. But notice the cursing of the fig tree. Church, that is a clear time marker that all of the Gospels point to. Matthew points to it. Mark points to it. He cursed the fig tree, and there's no ambiguity around this. He cursed the fig tree on Monday morning, the 10th of Nisan. Matthew isn't confused. He isn't misstating the facts. These are writers of Holy Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. What this means is that Jesus rode into town on Sunday... And by Sunday afternoon, he's purging the temple. He's driving them out. He is taking up court in his temple. He is healing people. He is teaching people. And he is challenging the Pharisees. He goes home and stays the night at Bethany. Meanwhile, these guys kind of filter back in, start setting their tables up, putting their money books out, getting all the accounting books, getting the pigeons ready, getting all the livestock ready to sell. They're ready to go again. Because they think, oh, well, he's done this. He's kind of, he, you know, he kind of had his temper tantrum and that's it. The end. We'll just go back to business as usual. Jesus comes back the next morning. He curses the fig tree. And again, he walks in and he throws over the tables. He does it a second time. He comes in, he forms a cord of whips, and in rage, he drives them from the temple. He 
throws over their tables, and again, he says, my house is a house of prayer. You're turning it into a den of robbers. Now, this expression, you and me, we get in our cars and we drive. The better way to understand this expression, this first century expression in the 21st century, what Jesus is saying is, you guys are becoming like a cave of terrorists. You are trying to get between me and my people. And guess what? Jesus says, nothing comes between him and his people. Jesus is in his temple. He is triumphant. And you can come every single day with your business and your predatory predatory lending practices. You can come every single day with your false teaching. You can come every single day with your lies and your deception. And the king stays put because he loves you. You need to know him in the truth. And he's going to keep away everyone that would take advantage of you. Jesus loves you. I think, sadly, we come to a place in Western Christianity where we think, I got to try harder. I got to do better. I got to be more. Or we just shrug our shoulders and we give up and we say, you know what? I'm reading the Bible all wrong. God's okay with my sin. He'll just give me grace upon grace upon grace. However you look at it, you know what we've become like? We're like Dorothy in the land of Oz. I got to chase after the magic pair of ruby red slippers. I want to get home, but there's things I got to do. Church, listen. Jesus comes to die on the cross. He comes to take up residence. He comes for you. You don't fight your way to Christ. The king reigns, and he conquers, and he comes to you, and he rescues you right where you are because he loves you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we worship you this morning, we say thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he would not tolerate false teaching. Thank you, Lord, that he would not tolerate the abuses of the predatory money exchangers and lenders in the temple. He would not, he would not abide any of this because he wanted everyone to come see him and through him to see you. Father in heaven, we just say thank you. God, we know that we need repentance in our life. We struggle to be the people you died to make us. And in that struggle, we sometimes get confused about the fact that it really does still depend all on you. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that we would not be people who become legalists, who try to do it all in our own strength, but that we would rest in the cross. We also pray this morning, Lord, if there are any here who are redefining grace in order to understand to try to deceive themselves into thinking somehow you don't care about their life or their obedience. Pray, Lord, that you convict them of that. And for all who are gathered here, Lord, help us all to know that judgment comes. Indeed, you're coming with judgment. But love has come first. Help us to desire you, to want to be with you, 
Help us to love you as you have loved us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus came to rescue you because he loves you. Love has come first, and he's coming again. Would you stand as we sing our last song this morning?